everyone. Welcome to Crime Colts and Coffee. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Bryn. Today, we have a really cool coffee. Oh my god, we're so excited. Yeah. Do you have anything you wanted to say before we talk about our coffee? Um, just to review from last week, we made a little announcement in the beginning of our episode about our GoFundMe that we are doing for Drew Molinari. He was featured yes. in episode 20. Yes. And if you guys can um, donate, even if it's like $2, $5, $10, anything is appreciated to get this billboard up for him and to help his mom and his family out with it. Right. The billboard is to just help kind of keep his name talked about and spread some awareness about him and his case because his uh, killer has still not been found. And the GoFundMe we have is trying to raise about $500 for this billboard to be put up. Right. And also the seven-year anniversary of his murder is coming up in May. So I feel like this would just be a really nice thing on the lighter side of this whole situation for his mom to be able to do for him. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Anything else before we get into our coffee review? Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. Um, I do have, it's not really a surprise recommendation. I don't think I've talked about it yet, but I've been watching Euphoria on Netflix. Have I talked about it? No, but I am too. Are you? Yeah. It's well, not good. not on Netflix, though, on HBO. I oh, watch. shit. You're right. It's on HBO. <laughs> God, I can't keep up. Do you want to re-say that? That's okay. Okay. But yeah, um, I, I don't know. I just think, first of all, I love shows that are based in, like, high school times. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I've always loved it. Um, but I think, and this isn't a spoiler and by any means it happens in the first episode, but I think that it's a very accurate depiction of addiction and what mm. addiction looks like. And the whole show kind of shows like the ups and downs of a person with an addiction problem. And it's just so accurate. Yeah. The thing that I like about it so far is that it also shows that without glamorizing it. Right. And it's like, it's actually what people go through mm -hmm. and you see like the bad sides of it and um you know I feel like a lot of times it's not like that for tv shows and media portrayal so right I think it also I mean it touches upon other topics too like mental illness and depression yeah and things like that and I I think it reminds me of a more – I grew up watching Degrassi. Yes. And it reminds me of a, like, more extreme updated version of Degrassi. Yes. It's very, like, high school problems, but also very real life and adult problems as well. Yeah. Agreed. I literally just started it probably two nights ago, and I'm in season two already. <laughs> Holy fuck. The episodes are so long. I don't even understand how you're doing that. Because I've been binging. <laughs> I have four episodes left, and I'm lucky if we get an episode in before Carson falls asleep every night. Oh, my God. See, I'm watching it without Timo. That's how oh, I'm doing see, it. That's why. That's how. <laughs> um, another thing that I wanted to give a quick little shout-out to is Kelsey for getting me a sauce moto. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. And... 
I put a post on my Instagram story about it today just to prove that I like use it because Timo's always like, is that in there for show? Did you Wait, see my story? No, shut up. I don't even use <laughs> I don't go on Instagram very much anymore. I tagged you. It says isn't just for show and it's a barbecue sauce that I have in the sauce moto. Oh my god. And it's a I put clutch investment, Kels. Thanks again. Oh my god, I didn't even see that. That's hysterical. <laughs> and they reposted it on their Instagram story. Shut the fuck up. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, I was so excited because I use this thing so much. So, okay, me and Bryn are the only two that think it's a great invention, apparently. <laughs> so it's this little thing, and I saw it, I think it was on Shark Tank. Yeah, it was. I saw it on Shark Tank, and I was like, oh my god, everybody I know <laughs> needs to have one of these. <laughs> So I ordered like six and they're little um, like, okay, you know, when you go to like fast food places and you get like a little sauce, you plug this little sauce moto thing into your like car vent and it holds like the McDonald's like dipping sauce or whatever that you want to put in it. It fits all different sizes. It's the best. And so when you're driving, you don't have to be, like, holding your sauce and, like, crashing your car. Because <laughs> that's a common thing. So I buy it for everybody in the family. And me and Brynn are the only two that use it. And I, <laughs> I asked Dad a while ago if he uses it. He's like, oh, um, Carson, you can have mine. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, Timo, the one day he went in my car and he was like, do you just have that there to make Kelsey, like, think that you use it? <laughs> and I'm like, no. And he's like, you actually use it. I was like, yeah, I use it all the time. I don't understand how no not everybody else is this excited. But, um, yeah, I was really excited about it. I use it all the time, too. Are people not as invested in condiments as we are? Maybe. I'm a very big condiment person. Me too. That and might I be I love it. it. I love it so much. And the funny thing is, too, is I didn't know you saw it on Shark Tank. Mm -hmm. And like two months after you had bought it for me, Timo and I were watching Shark Tank and it was on that episode. And he's like, isn't that the thing Kelsey bought you? <laughs> and I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, it is. That's amazing. Like, I was going crazy. It's the sauce moto. <laughs> It's oh amazing. I'll uh, I'll post on the Crime Colton Coffee story. I'll save my story and post it on there in this week's episode so you guys can see it in action. <laughs> oh my god, that's amazing. I love that so much. So good. So let's get into our coffee. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the coffee and where it's from? Sure. So this week's coffee that we're reviewing is Mazama Coffee. It's, the ro it's a coffee company and roastery. Out of Dripping Springs, Texas. Mm. Yeah. And the coffee beans that we have from them this week are Arabica. Mm. And it says that they're micro roasted on site. Amazing. I just can't. I haven't even sipped it yet. I'm so fucking excited. It is so good that I think in comparison to last week's review, I might have to adjust last week's review. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So... Just a little background about Mazama Coffee. Their uh, uh, website is mazamacoffee.com, and it's M-A-Z-A-M-A coffee.com. So make sure you go ahead and check out their website so you can buy their coffee. All right, so this is just a little blurb from their website. 
It says caffeinated perfection. Born and raised in Texas Hill Country, Mazama Coffee Co. hand selects only the finest beans from around the world and roasts right here in historic downtown Dripping Springs under the spreading oak tree. That sentence just sounds heavenly in itself. Yeah, it does. Like, I want to live in a place called Dripping Springs. Um, yes, please. That sounds and amazing. Dripping Springs is perfect that uh, for, like, drip coffee. Yeah. By the way, if you go on their Instagram, which is Mazama Coffee, the same way Kelsey spelt it before, M-A-Z-A-M-A Coffee. If you go on their Instagram, they're, like, brews and... I guess it's lattes and cappuccinos and stuff they make look completely amazing. And their little storefront shop is just the cutest thing I've ever seen. It really is. Like, the pictures of the place look so cute. Mm -hmm. Like, the the ivy growing on the side. Oh, I need to go. So, this is another little um, about me blurb they have on their website. It says, your coffee, your hometown coffee house. Coffee is not a frivolous treat. It's a nourishment for your soul. Coffee brings people together. It forms community. Grabbing a cup of joe can mean the start of a friendship, the launch of a new business venture, or just catching up with an old friend. The aroma of freshly brewed coffee is instantly recognizable and almost without exception evokes a deeply positive feeling. It brightens mornings, perks up mid-afternoon, when all we want is a quick nap, and a nice espresso caps off an exquisite dinner. Oh, I love the words they use. It's I literally describe. I know. That was a very nice sentence. I liked that. It was. Whoever's on your writing team deserves a raise. Right? And I feel like when you said the aroma, I literally had to smell my coffee. Yeah, and it's so true. I just I don't know. That's one of the biggest things I love about coffee shops itself is like you normally go to coffee shops with a friend or you're meeting up with somebody and it's just like, I don't know, the memories that come along with them. I love it. Mm-hmm. So what are you thinking about this week's coffee? Okay, I haven't sipped it yet because I want to be surprised. <laughs> it is incredible. Incredible. Like I said, I loved the coffee we reviewed last week from Defer, but now in comparison to this one, I think I might have to shift last week's coffee from an 8.5 to about an 8, like you had said. Yeah. Because this one is very high up in my book. Yeah, this is really good. Mm -hmm. This is Arabica? Yes. So I didn't mention before that the blend that we are trying from the Mazama coffee this week is Costa Rica, and it says campfire blend. Yummy. What do you taste? What? What do you taste? So to me, it tastes like there's a little bit of um, a fruit in there. Yeah. Like I said, I just really enjoy this coffee. I feel like it's flavorful without being too much. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I'm trying to think of what I want to rate it. I know what I want to rate it. Carson was mocking me downstairs before I came up. And he was like, this coffee, we loved it. And it's a 7.32. <laughs> I was like, fuck off. We don't do 0. 0.32. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what okay. would you rate this coffee? Oh, God, this do we want to say it on three? No, you say it first because I don't know yet. Okay. I would rate this one, I think, an 8.5. 
8.7 around there because it's not it doesn't taste like if I were to get like a hazelnut coffee like too flavored or noted but there Mm -hmm. is some notes in there that you can taste where it's not overbearing and I feel like I wouldn't get sick of drinking a bag of this coffee agreed yeah what would you rate it oh it's hard um okay I would say an eight. I'm going to stay at an eight. Okay. All right. So ready? Yeah. So grab your coffee and have a morning with us. So now we are going to start our case off today. This one was actually suggested by Ashley. Thank you, Ash. Thanks, Ashley. You always bring up the craziest cases. So I'm excited about this one. This case today is... Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about about the background first, but it's about Psycho Sam and the Farmville murders, which literally just that little blurb there sounds like the title of a movie. It really does. And I feel like the way he spells psycho, you need to point out. Yeah. It's just so it's it makes it even stranger. Like this whole thing is just so weird. Yeah. So it's spelled S-Y-K-O psycho sam so this crime took place at 505 first ave in farmville virginia on uh in september of 2009 the victims of this case i'm just gonna go through and list them and say a little blurb about each of them the first one was mark niederbrock and he was age 50 he was born in illinois he was an Eagle Scout, and he graduated from the University of Illinois. He was also a graphic designer before becoming a pastor. He was a pastor at Walker's Presbyterian Church in Hicksburg, Virginia, for six years before this event happened. Yeah. I just want to mention that I did never, I never knew that there was a place called Hicksburg, Virginia. (laughs) Yeah, neither did I. Interesting name. Okay, so the next victim we're going to talk about is Dr. Deborah S. Kelly, and she was 53 years old at the time. She was an associate professor of sociology and criminal justice studies at Longwood University, uh, which was a public university in Farmville, Virginia. She was a mentor to a lot of her students. Deborah and Mark had been divorced for about nine months before this crime took place. So that's how the first two victims are connected. Weird, too, how she was a professor of criminal justice studies. I know. And she ended up being a victim of something, which we'll get into, that's absolutely horrific. Literally so terrifying. Yeah. And I feel like the sociology part of it, too, it's so strange how this happened to her when she literally studied that kind of thing in people right it's just a weird coincidence Mm -hmm. so the next victim's name was emma niederbrock and she was age 16 at the time she was born october 15th 1992 and she was deborah and mark's daughter she was born in champagne Illinois, but moved to Farmville, Virginia at some point. She was homeschooled since middle school, and she was a huge fan of horrorcore rap, which we'll talk a little bit about later down the road. 
When her parents divorced, Emma lived in the family's home with her mom. She spent a lot of time online, and her MySpace name was quote-unquote Ragdoll. She used her MySpace account to listen to horrorcore, find music festivals, and meet other fans. And this... Uh, Apparently... Sorry. Apparently in that community, I just wanted to add in there, in that community, that was like a common thing for these fans of horrorcore to meet online at least during this time period, mm-hmm. and to also connect with these horrorcore rappers online and kind of, like, become friends with them. So when they went to these festivals, they, like, knew people there already and knew some of the artists personally. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I feel like even, like, that sounds familiar with just the time of MySpace, you know? Mm-hmm. So this is a CBC News article, uh, article quote. It says, quote, remembered as a rebellious girl who dabbled in the occult and was obsessed with macabre music, but also listened to the Backstreet Boys and played soccer. Aww. So, so that was just a like, mix. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I feel like I feel like that sounds like a well-rounded person. Yeah. And also like. A 16-year-old girl who's still kind of figuring herself out and finding her identity and dabbling in the things she likes. Yeah. Trying to figure out what she likes. Mm-hmm. The next victim we're going to talk about is Melanie Wells. She is 18 years old at this time. She was best friends with Emma Niederbrock, and her parents were Thomas G. Wells Jr. and Kathleen Wells. Right before Melanie was going to go to high school, her family moved to West Virginia from Louisville, Kentucky. She had gone to Musselman High School, but dropped out and was studying for her high school equivalency diploma. Some may know this as the GED. At that time, uh, Melanie was staying with Emma Niederbrock and Emma's mother, Deborah Kelly. So that's how she's connected in all of this. Mm hmm. A little bit of background, we are going to get into the perpetrator's background a bit, but we do need to include some necessary background details about him. Mm -hmm. His name was Richard Alden Samuel McCroskey III, a.k.a. Dick, (laughs) which we'll be referring to him as for pretty much this entire episode. (laughs) He was an amateur horrorcore rapper and graphic designer. So getting into what horrorcore is, because some people are probably like, wait, what is this? Yeah. Which is what I was like when I was first reading about it. Like, what exactly is this music? I had no idea. Yeah. So horrorcore is also known as horror hip-hop, horror rap, death hip-hop, or death rap. And this is a quote from Wiki. Actually, the next two quotes I'm going to say are... So, quote, it's a subgenre of hip-hop music based on horror-themed and often darkly transgressive lyrical content and imagery. Here's another quote. Quote, horrorcore artists often push the violent content and imagery in their lyrics beyond the realm of realistic urban violence to the point where the violent lyrics become gruesome, ghoulish, unsettling, or slasher film or splatter film-esque. While exaggerated violence and the supernatural are common in horrorcore, 
The genre also frequently presents more realistic yet still disturbing portrayals of mental illness and drug abuse. That is so terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, to each their own with what you enjoy doing and listening to as long as you're not harming yourself or others. But I feel like to listen to that kind of stuff in music is, to me personally, disturbing. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever be able to listen to one of those songs. It's, it's It's something so like unsettling. I don't know why you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I mean, music is a form of expression, but I don't know why you would need to express disturbing things in regards to mental illness and murder and all that. Yeah. Some names that he went by, because I mentioned earlier his actual name is Dick. Uh, Some (laughs) names that he went by were Psycho Sam, as Kelsey mentioned in the beginning. And Lil Demon Dog. Shut the fuck up. And Lil Demon Dog has the up, down, up, down letters, like, from the early 2000s. That's literally how my screen name was. Same. (laughs) I literally put in the notes, Psycho Sam was his horrorcore rapper name. I'm assuming the other one was another one he went by, or maybe his AIM username. Stop. That's literally for anybody that didn't use AIM. That's how we used to have our like screen names. Yeah. Because none of these articles really specified what Lil Demon Dog was. That has to be his username. Yeah. If that popped up on my fucking AIM, I'd be I'd be out of that real quick. Lil Demon Dog. <laughs> Lil Demon Dog wants to send you a message. Yeah. Fuck you. Little little demon demon dog dog can fuck off. Yeah, no thanks. So he had a MySpace page, and this was his Psycho Sam page, where he put his songs up, and they had violent lyrics, including lyrics about death, mutilation, and murder. No. He was teased because of his weight and his red hair in high school, which I think that's, like, the saddest part of his story. Yeah. To be honest, because that's not right. Um, he was described as a loner. His sister said he was, quote, mild-mannered and, quote, a kind person who wouldn't fight back when bullied and never reacted badly to anything without provocation. And that was a quote from Wiki. So it just goes to show everybody that's listening, don't be a fucking bully. Yeah. Not that that was an excuse for anything that he does in the future. No. But clearly it didn't help with his mental illness that he had had to have had right and you don't know what you say or do is gonna how it's gonna affect somebody so just don't Mm -hmm. even go down that road that's so Mm -hmm. fucked up yeah so five months before the crime his dad asked his mom to move out in which dick was said to be devastated he lived in Castro Valley, California, but had planned a trip to Virginia to see his friend and or girlfriend, Emma Niederbrock, which Kelsey mentioned earlier who she was. They met online in September of 2008. He was 19 and Emma was 15 when they met. Yeah, not good. No. And I mean, as you get older, I feel like that age gap really isn't that big of a deal but at that time it was because she was a minor yeah that's illegal yeah 
So they quote unquote dated online for almost a year and the two were close and Dick thought of her as his girlfriend, but it was kind of unclear if Emma was serious about him or considered them dating. There's some things further down as we go on in regard, like things that she said that made it seem like she was serious, but then there's also things that happen where it's like maybe she was like kind of dating him but not like official if you know what I mean. Yeah, that makes sense. But in his eyes, she was his girlfriend. Yeah, well. And they spoke on the phone almost daily even though they had never met in person before. I feel like just you saying that part is kind of like how a lot of relationships that end up in like something horrible or something you know horrific where it ends up being a crime it kind of starts out as something like that where like the guy gets very like possessive and the girl's like I wasn't even with you and Mm -hmm. you know yeah or vice versa with a girl and a guy yeah it's kind of like or a guy and a guy or a girl and a girl but I feel like this this case and the situation behind it reminded me a lot of Bianca Devins' case. I was literally just going to say it's kind of like Bianca Devins. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. So we're going to get into the timeline. September 6, 2009, Dick flew from California to Virginia to visit Emma. The next day, September 7, 2009, Emma posted on MySpace, quote, Next time you check your MySpace, you'll be at my house. She added, quote, I love you so, so much, baby, forever and always and for always. So I feel like that right there made it seem like she was serious about their relationship. Right. At that time. Right. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. It's unclear whether Dick got to Emma's house in Farmville on the 7th or the 8th, but Melanie arrived at Emma's house then at that point. Allegedly, when Emma met Dick in person, she was feeling different about him. She, he looked different from the MySpace photos. He was shorter, younger looking. He had greasy hair and he was immature. So, so like when she actually met him in person, she was like, this is not what I thought it it was going to be. Yeah, Emma was like, I think I get catfished. Yeah. I don't know what she was thinking. but Which she's entitled to those feelings. Right. Emma was polite to him, but was no longer acting like lovey-dovey when she met him. Which, I mean, if you're catfished and you're expecting somebody to look the way a certain way, and then they show up and they look different, that's not on her. Mm -hmm. Especially if he had taken those photos on MySpace at, like, different angles or trying to make himself look different, then that's kind of on him. Yeah. That he showed up there and was different. Yeah. September 12th, 2009, quote, Strictly for the Wicked was an all-day horrorcore festival taking place in Southgate, Michigan. Emma and Melanie had been planning on going to the festival, and when Emma and Dick talked about it, they thought it'd be a good place to hang out in person for the first time. 
Mark and Deborah, remember those are Emma's parents, weren't too happy about this, but they decided to drive Emma, Melanie, and Dick to the festival that day. Mark and Deborah hung out in the city while they were at the festival, like good parents would. Mm-hmm. FYI, the drive from Farmville, Virginia to Southgate, Michigan was about 10 hours without stopping. Holy fuck. So, like, those are some fucking dedicated parents. If my kid asked me to do that, it'd be, I don't even have a kid, but I'd be like, no. Yeah, and keep in mind, dedicated, newly divorced parents. Yeah. Who like were then... Co-parenting. Yeah, and spending the entire day together while these kids were at this festival just so they can drive them there 10 hours away. Damn. Allegedly at the festival, Emma barely paid attention to Dick and was being flirtatious with other guys, which, again is totally her fucking decision and she has the right to. Mm -hmm. This was occurring in person and over text, which he was aware of throughout the festival. 11 p.m. is when the festival ended that day. September 13th, 2009, which was the next day, Emma's parents drove them all back to Farmville. So clearly they stayed overnight somewhere. Yeah, must have got like a hotel or something so they didn't Mm -hmm. have to drive. 10, yeah. 20 hours in the same day. Yeah. September 14th, 2009, Melanie posted on MySpace, quote, SFTW was fucking amazing. Back in Virginia now. Be back in West Virginia on Wednesday. I miss everyone! Exclamation point. Aww. Yeah. So no one heard from Melanie after this post on Monday or Tuesday, which was super strange. Her parents started to worry when they couldn't get in touch with her. And the Wednesday she was supposed to come home, which would have been September 16th, her dad Thomas drove 200 miles from Inwood, West Virginia to Farmville. Oh my God. These parents are such good parents. Yeah, holy shit. So no one answered the door when he got there. So he waited in his car thinking they might be like out somewhere. He waited for approximately seven hours before he left, realizing that no one was coming. Holy shit. Yeah. So imagine what was going through his mind as he was waiting there. Like, where the hell's my daughter? She, We haven't heard from her. She's supposed to be coming home, like, today. Yeah. And I'm here where she is, and no one's even around. That's so scary. So after waiting around, he decided to leave and he got home and melanie's mom kathleen called everyone and anyone asking about melanie they called emma's house multiple times with no answer and serial killing records also known as skr is a small independent record label owned by andre shrim based in albuquerque new mexico a lot of the horrorcore music Emma, Melanie, and Dick listened to was produced by SKR. They also organized the Strictly for the Wicked Festival. And that's a quote from Talk Murder With Me. Kathleen um, got Andre Shrim's number and got in contact with him as well. And he said he saw the girls, remember... This was, like, common for people to know other people at the festival. So this guy who organized this whole thing, like, knew who they were. Yeah. 
Um, he said he saw the girls and Dick at the festival that they had left with Emma's parents, and he wasn't sure of anything outside of that. Kathleen then called Emma's house again, and this time Dick answered. She asked where Melanie was, and he couldn't give her a straight answer. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I had read in a couple other articles that she had called multiple times where he answered and each time he was kind of giving her like a different explanation of where they were and things just like weren't adding up what the fuck yeah september 17th 2009 which was the thursday kathleen called the farmville police and asked them to do a welfare check at the house the police went to the house and dick answered the door they asked where emma deborah and melanie were And he told them that they were at the movies. So the police took his word for it and didn't ask to go inside. Okay, I have a lot of questions about this. Like, this person has been fucking missing. And the one person that has been answering says they're at the movies and you just believe them. Isn't that part of a welfare check? You have to go in and check? I guess maybe they can't enter the house without probable probable cause, but... I feel like, number one, which this wasn't really stated in any of the articles, number one, did they ask who the fuck he was? Right. And were and when he said who he was, like, if he was like, oh, I'm Emma's boyfriend, did they question why he was there in their house by himself? Right. Like, where is Emma then? And why are you not with them? Yeah. And... Number two, I'll get into a little further down because I don't want to say something before it happens. But I have another question in regards to uh, them showing up at the house that I'll pose later on. Yeah. So the police left and around 5 p.m. the well- after the welfare check, Kathleen called Mark Niederbrock and expressed her concerns. Mark lived in Pamplin, Virginia, which was about 20 minutes away from Farmville. He said he would go to the house and he would call her back after he talked to Melanie. September 18th, 2009, which was the next day, around 4 a.m., someone who lived on Poor House Road in Farmville called the police and said that a car was stuck in a ditch at the bottom of their driveway, which is just weird. Yeah, especially at 4 a.m. Yeah. A tow truck and a deputy arrived to help, and the stuck person was none other than Dick. He was given a ticket for driving without a license and said he was driving his girlfriend's dad's car. He mentioned that he'd be flying back to California the next day on the 19th. That's what he told the police. The tow truck driver, Elton Knappler, gave Dick a ride to the gas station. Knappler said... Dick smelled beyond terrible, and he had to put his head out of the window to keep himself from gagging. Oh. Oh, my God. Putrid. Oh. I'm going to gag just thinking about it. Yeah. Napier said, quote, he stunk like the devil. And that was a talkmurderwithme.com quote. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. Bless him for being able to hold back his gagging because I know I wouldn't be able to. Bryn would have been straight up puking (laughs) by the time 
this person got in the truck. (sighs) (laughs) And didn't, like, the deputy question, why the fuck does this person smell so rancid? And why was he driving his friend's, his girlfriend's dad's car, like? Yeah, without a license. Right. It just all doesn't make sense, and I feel like a lot, like, not enough questions were asked. Yeah. That morning, Kathleen called the police again. So this was the morning after the whole tow truck situation. She had not heard back from Mark, so that's why she called the police. Around 3.20 p.m., the police went back to the house. And at that point, the door was unlocked. I wonder why it took them so long to get there, though, if she called in the morning. I know. Because 3.20 p.m., I mean, that's pretty late. Yeah. Dick was gone, and no one appeared to be home. They opened the door of the house and immediately smelled death. Oh, my. Downstairs in Emma's bedroom, they found three bodies. Because of this, they obtained a search warrant, which allowed them to search the rest of the house. Oh, my God. So that was the question I was going to say earlier is when they had gone there for the first welfare check. Mm hmm. How did they already not smell something when he opened the door? I don't know. The only thing I can think of is, like, if while he was there, he had it, like, temperature controlled and, like, it was early on and maybe he had the body somewhere else. I don't know. Or if he, like, met them on the porch kind of thing and didn't have the door open. Yeah. But at the same time, one of the articles had said that neighbors... I I think later on had had said that they had been like, what the heck smells so bad when they were walking down the street and they thought it was just like a dead animal or something. Oh, my God. So if neighbors could smell it, how did the police not initially smell it when they talked to him for that first welfare check? Right, because that was on the 17th. And then when they discovered the bodies, it was only... Like a day later. A day later, yeah. Yeah. So that's I don't what know. doesn't and like that was the smell that the tow truck driver already smelled on him at four o'clock in the morning when he crashed the car into a ditch. Right. Maybe he did meet them out on the porch or like he had the bodies in a different area and that's why he smelled like them because he was moving them. I don't know. Ugh. God. It's just horrible. Yeah. So they then, after getting this search warrant and searching around the rest of the house, they then found another body in an upstairs room. They had found out that all four people had died from blunt force trauma, and the scene was described as absolutely horrifying. I literally cannot even fucking imagine, and I never want to have to imagine what it was like walking into that scene. No. Those people are probably traumatized. Right. Let alone what the victims went through, but, like, the police that then had to find them like that. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, September 21st, 2009, which was the following Monday, the bodies were identified as Mark Niederbrock, Deborah Kelly, Emma Niederbrock, and Melanie Wells. Ugh. Yeah. Um... We're now going to move into the investigation and arrest side of the whole thing. 
it did not take long to identify Dick as a possible suspect because there was a social media trail, obviously, from him talking to Emma for this whole time. Proof that they had been at the festival together and an officer confirming who he spoke to at the house with social media pics, etc. Oh, my God. The police had to find him because he, at that point, was MIA. And luckily, the deputy recognized the wanted man as the man he had given a ticket to that morning at four in the morning. Thank God. Yeah. He told police about the convo he had and that Dick said he would be flying to California the next day. So, thank God he randomly told him that information because then they kind of knew, like, where to look for him. Yeah, honestly, like, if that part was missing, they may have never found him. Yeah. On the night of September 18th, 2009, Dick took a cab to Richmond International Airport and was going to stay there until his flight the next day on the 19th. Early September 19th, police apprehended Dick at Richmond International Airport, and he was found sleeping in a chair in baggage claim. Oh my God. The initial charges were the murder of Mark Niederbrock, grand larceny for stealing his freaking car, mm-hmm. and robbery for taking money from Mark's wallet, which we'll kind of talk about further down. September 21st, 2009, which was a Monday, which I mentioned before was the day that the bodies were identified. The McCroskey home in Castro Valley, California, which was Dick's uh, family home, was searched, and phones, computers, and other items of Dick's were seized. They were on top of that one. Yeah. Wow. So, we're going to talk a little bit about the motive and the crime. So, as many of you have probably guessed, his motive was rejection due to this rage, basically. I don't understand how rejection can cause you to murder four people, but... No. It's just so sickening. People need to find better ways of dealing with this. Yeah, to say the least. Because at some point in your life, whether it's regarding a relationship or not, everyone faces some form of rejection. Yeah. And if you're going to react... By murdering someone just because they chose they don't want to be with you, which is something they're completely entitled to, that's a fucking issue. Right. And I feel like, obviously, like, throughout your life, you have to deal with rejection and Mm -hmm. you have to learn how to fucking deal with it so this kind of shit doesn't happen. Yeah. And learn how to be told no to things. That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Or not get what you want all the time. It's horrible. He had been drinking and smoking weed, which basically fueled his anger, obviously. Not a good mixture to have somebody angry drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. September 15th was the day that he actually first killed Melanie on the couch in the den. He then killed Deborah in an upstairs bedroom. And lastly, he killed Emma in her downstairs bedroom. Oh my God. <sighs> All of them were allegedly sleeping when murdered with a ball-peen hammer. I really hope they actually were sleeping. 
I do too, and I hope not that that makes it any better. But... No, but I really hope they just didn't see it coming and they didn't have any fear. Yeah, and that they didn't like feel anything. And oh yeah. my god, so fucking awful. There were no defensive wounds, suggesting that his story is accurate, and none of the women woke up during the attacks. Oh my god, it I feel is... so bad for them. I know. I literally can't even imagine. Around 3 a.m. September 15th to 5 p.m. September 17th, Dick stayed in the house with the three dead women. Oh, my fucking God. Like, I'm sorry. How in the world are you human and can you do that? It doesn't make any sense to me. This was also that span of time when he was staying there was the time that the welfare check had happened. And up until Mark had got to the house, that was that time period as well. I have no fucking words. Yeah. For someone not only capable of doing that, but just like hanging out in the house afterward. Like how? Like how are you living in a place where you murder people? so inhuman when mark went to the house he was ambushed downstairs and beaten with an eight pound wood splitting maul oh my freaking god all of the victims again died from blunt force trauma to the head dick then dragged mark and melanie's bodies into emma's room then tried to quote unquote clean up the den what the fuck I don't know, but this whole thing is so disgusting that somebody could actually be human and do this to another human being. Dick recorded a video of himself on digital camera, and he talked about having to pay for what he had done. And in the video, or just in general, at that point, he contemplated suicide. That brings us to September 18th. Around 3.45 a.m., he stole the cash from Mark's wallet took Mark's two, 2000 Honda and got stuck in a ditch. And that's when he was the police were called by that person whose driveway he was stuck in. I feel like the fact that he, there was a welfare check and he didn't get caught. And then he literally drove from the scene and fucking got stuck in a ditch in the same town where he committed this murder and a deputy showed up and he didn't get caught how did the deputy not be like you smell like dead body yeah you know i don't know maybe he's never smelled one i haven't but you know i don't know i feel like you would just know that smell whether you've right like come across it or not it's just like a, a certain it's something you've never smelled before yeah and it, it smells like it smells like death the fact that there were two opportunities where he could have been caught not that it i mean at the welfare check it could have potentially spared mark's life yeah which is really sad to think about yeah and not putting the blame on anyone for them not figuring it out but i just feel like there were two opportunities where how the fuck wasn't this man caught? Yeah. And I'm glad he eventually was, but 
it's also like crazy that he fled it he fled a scene and it's almost like comical in a way that he fled a scene and his car got stuck in a fucking ditch yeah and that was like the second opportunity honestly if that didn't happen though the police officer would have never gotten the information about right you know going to california it almost reminds me of i think it was ted bundy who got pulled over right after like committing a murder and he thought that was going to be the time he was caught yeah it was yeah he got pulled over for i can't remember what it was but it it was was something stupid not a headlight being out but something like it was something like that that was at night yeah yeah this is the same type of situation where it's like the universe intervenes and then it leads to something else in order for them to be caught or like they should have been caught and you're like what the fuck yeah I don't know. So on to the trial and conviction. October 19th, 2009, he was indicted on six counts of capital murder per Virginia law. He sought a plea deal instead of going to trial and receiving the death penalty. Commonwealth's attorney James Ennis says that the victim's families were in support of this decision. So as long as they were in support of it. Right. They probably would have rathered him taken the plea deal than had to go through the whole trial. Right, I agree. September 20th, 2010, he pled guilty to two counts of capital murder and two counts of first-degree murder and waived his right to an appeal. Dick was given four life sentences in prison, so he's there the rest of his life. And he is incarcerated at Wallens Ridge State Prison in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Like, obviously, I'm happy that he's in prison forever now and he's never going to get out. But, like, I just, I feel so fucking horrible for the victim's family, Mm -hmm. families. And for them, it's just so awful. Yeah. Like, he literally murdered an entire family. And then took this other daughter from another family. Yeah. For no fucking reason besides his own issues with dealing with with rejection. Yeah. And, like, the fact that after everything that her mother, like, did for them that weekend and everything. And, like, I just – it just doesn't – it doesn't make any sense. I know. They didn't even have to allow him not only fly out – from california to virginia they didn't have to allow him to stay in their fucking home right without knowing him but they probably just wanted to keep an eye on their daughter being with this man right because he was older yeah i mean at the point that they actually met he was 20 years old yeah and she was 16 which in and of itself is horrifying as a parent i'm sure not only that but these people who i mean we don't know the ins and outs of the relationship but recently divorced take this 10 hour drive 20 hours total to bring them to like a festival like that that it's just they were just so giving and such supportive parents and it's so sad that he just, like, ended all of their lives out of complete rage. 
Right. Like all for what? Like what was it really about because she was rejecting you? That's really why you killed four people? Yeah. It just it just blows my fucking mind. <sighs> just so fucking awful. Mm. Obviously it was stemming from other issues as well, but people need to learn how to properly cope. Right. It's so much like you said, like Bianca's case, it's just so sickening. Mm-hmm. Literally like the same motive. Yeah. Which is so sad. Yeah. Well, that is the end of today's episode. Did you have anything else you wanted to add? I don't think so, besides getting into our little spiel. Yeah, so we'll just move into that then. Um, So... You know where to find us on our Facebook is Crime Cults and Coffee, and that's where we post weekly about our cases that we talk about every week, and we post the resources and photos from the episode. And we also have our Instagram, Crime Cults and Coffee, and that's where we post all of our recommendations that we talk about in the episodes and all of the coffees that we have reviewed. You can also, as a reminder, check our about me uh link tree and that's where drew molinari's gofundme is set up as well yeah please check that out uh if you have a case suggestion like ashley gave us today or a listener story you can either dm us at our instagram at crime cults and coffee or send us an email at crime cults and coffee at gmail.com we love those love them yeah and then if you listen to us on apple podcasts you can leave us a rate and review which we would deeply appreciate deeply deeply and if you otherwise listen to us on another platform you can always follow us or subscribe it really helps our podcast to be seen and we just really love you guys and and appreciate you listening to us every week. Right. And I do just want to mention too, based off of that, I forgot one of our listeners reached out via email um, a week or so ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it was so nice to just hear from our listeners. Cause I feel like, you know, when you guys interact with us, it's like, wait, there's people out there that are listening. <laughs> yeah. We love when you engage on any kind of platform with us. And I I love how I feel like the past couple weeks, people have been engaging where it's like, we're like, oh, let us know about this. And then we get a bunch of DMs in regards to something we said on the podcast. Yeah. And then the email that she had sent, I feel like was so great because it was in reference to something we said about um, the DNA like how didn't they save dna back then why wouldn't they save dna back then and i think kelsey you had brought up that like maybe that wasn't even like a thought that crossed their mind back then yeah and should i read what the what this girl said yeah she kind you can look for it she kind of confirmed that and was just so sweet about it and i opened up the email and i i screenshot it and sent it to brand i'm like look yeah someone i was like oh my gosh yeah, so shout out Erin. She had said, just wanted to give you a heads up. DNA wasn't even discovered until the late or until the 50s. So preserving anything to be tested wasn't even in their scope of possibility. They had no clue. Anywho, love you ladies. 
Thank you. Yeah, and that was regarding the Valeska murders. So I appreciate that knowledge, that newfound knowledge. Yes, and definitely, by all means, correct us. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. We can take criticism without having time. rage. Right. As long as you don't, as long as you don't like make fun of me or bully me, I'm fine. Yeah, just don't shit on me, okay? <laughs> That's all I ask, okay? <laughs> but we do, we do love it, and we appreciate you guys. And until next week, bye. regarding this case and our resources follow us at crime cults and coffee on instagram and facebook